The following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I'd like to begin with a little practice. I know most of you or many of you have done meditation before, but there are a few of you, or maybe half of you, that probably haven't really done much, if any. And just to give us all a taste of how simple practice can be. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy, right? Our minds are in the habit of being quite complicated. So generally speaking, we have trouble with things that are simple. And uh, this is why we have to practice. So again, welcome. Um, probably you figured out. My name's Mark Nunberg, and I'm the main teacher here at Common Ground Meditation Center. There are other teachers at the programs. And uh, we've been here for about 13 years. And as you can see, we're a little bit too small for the size of our classes, so we're moving down the block, uh, seven blocks, to the old uh, family diner, some of you know about, at the corner of 27th Avenue and 26th Street. So if you're worried about the size, uh, in about five months after our renovations, we'll have a new larger space down the block. So during the course of these six weeks, I'll be giving some very practical instructions about meditation practice and then we'll be practicing, and then we'll be sharing about what you're noticing and any questions you have. And I'll also spend some of the time giving a more theoretical or um, conceptual overview of Buddhist awakening practice or Buddhist mindfulness practice. Now, the, the Buddhist stuff, it's just uh, they're useful models, but you don't need to be a Buddhist to develop or to cultivate mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is simply uh, noticing the way it is. So you don't need to be a Buddhist, but you might find some of the Buddhist concepts and models useful in your own uh, developing your own interest in being more awake, more present in the world. And if you don't find them useful, just put them on the shelf because they might be useful down the road for you. So we'll be going back and forth working with some conceptual models, but mostly spending time with uh, specific instructions for how to train the mind to be less distracted and more undistracted, more mindful or present with present moment experience. So just a few details. Um, we won't be taking bathroom breaks, but there is a bathroom down the stairs, second door on the right. Um, and uh, is there anybody here who needs a ride? Anybody in a bus that wants a ride home? Okay. It would be nice if we could do carpooling, but I think it's probably not going to work unless you just happen to bump into somebody going in your direction. There's a handout um, that you might have seen. If not, pick it up on your way out. And also, please sign in. There is a waiting list for the course. and uh, if. If I'm going to take a look at how many people signed in, and we might take one or two more people. Um, or if for some reason it turns out that you can't attend the six weeks, please let us know, and then we can let somebody in off of the waiting list. 
Any specific or nuts and bolts questions about the course before I get started? So, as a tradition, there are different kinds of Buddhist meditation centers. Here in the West, this tradition of practice we call insight meditation or vipassana meditation. And uh, it's the kind of Buddhist mindfulness practice that comes from the monasteries in Thailand and Burma and Cambodia, not so much these days, but in the past in Laos and Sri Lanka, as opposed to Tibetan Buddhism, of course, which comes from Tibet, and Zen Buddhism, which comes from Korea and Japan and to some degree China. And those are the not the only, but the predominant kinds of meditation centers that are around these days from those traditions. And so the insight meditation or Vipassana tradition here in the States comes out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. That's what it's called, that style of Buddhist practice in Thailand and Burma and the countries that I mentioned. And although as a spiritual pa- uh, practice, it's, you know, it's pretty diverse and uh, involved. So in this course, we're specifically going to look at practices that support seeing clearly, or as I mentioned earlier, being non-distracted. So that's really the style of practice, meditation practice, that we'll be doing. There's so many different styles of meditation. So if somebody asks you, you know, well, what kind of meditation are you doing? The easiest answer is just what's mindfulness meditation, because most people have a sense of what that means. So what does being mindful mean? Well, one of the easiest ways to really get what it's about, it's not about thinking what's going on or thinking about what's going on. It's a more direct experience. Now, of course, a thought is also a present moment experience, just like the sound of a bird is a present moment experience or the pain in our knee or an emotion, a feeling of sadness. But to be mindful of a thought, it means that as a thought is arising in the mind, there's an understanding. There's a thought arising in this mind. Now, how many times when we're thinking are we aware that there's a thought? Not too often. So that means, that just simply means we're not being mindful of thoughts, of thinking. We're lost in our thoughts. An example of that would be if you're in a movie theater and it's a good movie and you get absorbed in the movie, you'll forget that you're in a movie theater and that you're with your friend. You're absorbed in the movie and the content or story of the movie. Well, we're doing that all the time in our lives. And we forget there's a life or better, there's a present moment here and it's like this. So that's the kind of awareness that we're cultivating. An ongoing, I mean, this is the the direction we're going, an ongoing recognition or remembering that this is how it is now. This is the present moment. This is how it is. We're not lost in our life, in the content or the story of our life, but we're actually awake to this is how it is. Ah, sadness, planning, worrying, comparing, envy happiness, calmness, is like this. So whatever the particular mind state, emotional state, physical state, 
the five senses, you know, the, uh, the auditory experience, the visual experience, smell, tactile, taste experience. It's just what it is in this moment. And we're recognizing it as phenomena. So in a way, we're learning to be sensitive to the six sense gates. So in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, we think of the six sense gates, the five physical senses, and then the mind. It is only through these six gates that we know the present moment or we know anything, right? Is there any way to know the world or know experience except through these six things? So we, we learn to be sensitive, and in particular, we practice not getting deluded, not getting confused by these six things, especially thinking, which means that when any one of these six things is happening, we have that we're developing the capacity to just know it for what it is. So like, if all of a sudden, you know, somebody started playing this incredible violin outside, you know, we could hear it here. It would be very easy to come up with a story like, that's weird, someone's playing a violin outside, and, and get lost in the, in the thought. It's not so easy to just stay awake to the sound and then as the thought, the reaction comes, to just see, oh, that's thinking, hearing, thinking, and not to be confused. Thoughts are just thoughts. Sound is just sounds. And maybe we have an emotional reaction like, I'm the luckiest person in the world that somebody be playing this beautiful song or whatever kind of reaction, maybe ecstasy or something. And we just notice, oh, ecstasy is like this, thinking is like this, hearing is like this, touching is like this. So it's sort of a, a radical simplification and disenchantment or dispassionate way of relating to experience. Now here's the, here's the important trick. It doesn't mean that there aren't intense experiences. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we, become, we sort of become emotionally flat. It simply means that whether it's an intense emotion or a subtle emotion or an ordinary sound like a car driving by or an unusual sound, it just means that the sound is just a sound. And whatever the emotional response or reaction, it's just that. So we're not controlling how we react or respond to the moment. Our job is to practice understanding that however we respond or however life unfolds for us, it's just what it is. And people confuse, get confused about this because when they hear mindfulness instruction, inevitably we translate it in the way that uh, we have taken so many other things in our life, which is we're learning how to control something. You know, when we study gymnastics, we learn how to control the body. But here we're not learning how to control. We're learning how to see or receive. We're not trying to control our life or control our experience in any way. We're just practicing not being confused by what's being known, by what's being seen. Being confused by it means that we have an experience, whether it's a sound or a thought, and then we run with it. We sort of conceptualize the the experience, whether it's a memory or a sound or a tactile experience, arises, and then the mind converts the experience 
into some thought, and then that thought leads to another, and that thought leads to another, and off we go. And then we're sort of lost in the sense of not being awake to how it is, not noticing or recognizing, oh, this is just this. It's just this now. So even maybe in hearing these instructions, you can get a sense of the primary flavor of mindfulness practice is equanimity, a quality of non-reactivity or acceptance. But it's not passivity. Okay? So you got to remember. Now, when we're sitting in meditation practice, of course, we're sitting. We're not getting up and doing. But the whole point of meditation practice is to learn to be mindful in the easiest possible way where there's not a lot going on. The idea is to take it on the road, you know, to the office, in our relationships, as we're cooking dinner, as we're using the toilet. So it's not about being a passive human being. It's about being intimate and about seeing how the heart, the emotional conditioning, how it responds to the moment over and over again, and to just recognize it as what it is. So that our response to life really comes out of having just accepted the moment. So we, in a sense, it doesn't actually work this way, but in a sense, there's this radical acceptance, and then from that radical acceptance comes a appropriate response. And then there's radical acceptance, and then the appropriate response to the moment. So we want both. Now, they actually happen at the same time. As we're accepting, we're responding. In fact, radical acceptance is a response to the moment. But it's not, but the practice of being really intimate and present and not confused by experience doesn't stop us responding appropriately in the world. That's the whole point of doing this practice, of course, is to be more skillful, more wise and compassionate in the world. Why else would we do it? <laughs> it's hard work, right? So we do it because it helps us be a better person. So then it's really easy, like, how do we become less distracted? Well, the, all the techniques, and there are many different techniques, they all come down to uh, cultivating a balanced mind. And the balance, the easiest way to understand the balance we're looking for is between developing greater and greater degree, a greater and greater degree of calmness or relaxation in the heart and mind. But that's not it, because if that's all we did, we'd eventually fall asleep. So it's an increasing degree of tranquility that we're cultivating in practice. And at the same time, and just as important, increasing degrees of brightness in the mind, energy, interest, clarity, both. So if you can get, if we just did one, like relaxation, we get into a dull state. We might feel pretty good. It might be somewhat healthy to be really relaxed. But we wouldn't actually learn much. And if we just did the brightness, right, we'd probably become reactive and have a heavy-duty agenda. And that agenda, that sort of leaning forward, would get in the way of clarity, too. So to be really clear and non-distracted, not confused by our experience, by our life as it unfolds, we want to cultivate both of these. 
And you'll notice on any given day when you're doing your meditation practice or just going about your day, and it's good to notice this, just get a sense of what's stronger and weaker. Is there more relaxation than brightness, alertness, or more alertness and not enough relaxation? And the thing is, we never can get enough of either one of these. So we never like, well, let me get rid of a little alertness. No, we always want to increase the relaxation. Like if there's a lot of alertness, don't get rid of that. Increase, do something, practice, and that's what we'll be doing. How do I develop more relaxation, more tranquility, so that there's a balance between the brightness and the tranquility? Or if there's a lot of ease in your practice or in your day, but you feel like you're not really seeing what's going on or you just kind of want to curl up on a couch, then see what you can do to increase the brightness or interest in your mind, the energy in your mind. That's all we have to do. Everything follows from that. If we understand these, this basic, these two basic things and understand how effective the heart or mind is when they're in balance, how much we learn from our life when there's that clarity and ease. The ease or relaxation has a lot to do with contentment. And that really helps clear the mind because when we're content, we're not trying to get anything out of the moment. And that allows us to be really clear. You know, like if you're in, if you're in a conversation with somebody and you really want to get something from the conversation, it really helps you it really gets in the way of you seeing what's going on, like your own stuff or that other person's stuff. So the quality of ease and relaxation brings contentment, and that really clarifies the mind. And the brightness gives, a, gives the mind a penetrating quality. So we're not just seeing things on the surface, but we're actually going through the surface and really seeing what's going on in the moment. You know, it's like we can tell ourselves, I'm not angry. But that doesn't mean we're not angry. Right? On the surface, we don't think we're angry. But if we had some clarity, we might actually see, oh, yeah, I'm really upset. In a way, I really want to hurt that person. Ah, I didn't realize that. So we need both of these qualities. So that's the, the, the technique that I'll uh, introduce in just a moment. It's really about <coughs> supporting the development of both of these qualities and recognizing when there's an imbalance and how you might correct that imbalance. So let me just say a few words about posture because, you know, our posture is just uh, sit sitting in a way that supports those two qualities. And they're both uh, equally important. So when you find a sitting posture at home, you want to sit in a way that supports a sense of ease and relaxation. You want to be comfortable and stable. So don't think sitting on the floor is like the right way to meditate and sitting in a chair is for wimps or something like that. Excuse me, all you in chairs. Because <laughs> it's not true. Which, what's true is that it really does matter how you work with your body because the body and mind mirror each other. I'm sure you realize that. And so if you really work with your body, finding a relaxed and upright or wakeful sitting posture, it will make it a lot easier to cultivate that balance in your mind. If you have kind of a, just a dull sitting posture, like you get a nice lazy boy, you might, you might be pretty good at the relaxation part, 
but not the clarity. You know, some people want to be sort of really upright in their sitting posture, and they sort of imitating a meditator, and they might have kind of like, they may be really awake because the pain is so strong, <laughs> but there's no there's no capacity to receive experience because we're just trying to, you know, get somewhere. So, of course, it's nice to be upright because the mind gets really clear when there's when the spine is in alignment and the head just sits right on top of the spine and the earlobes are right over the shoulders and the nose in line with the belly button and the hands are resting in a nice symmetrical way, right? It's really nice. The energy in the body kind of flows in a, in a really good way that supports wakefulness. But we can't force it. It will actually unfold that way if we spend a little time at the beginning of every sit, just a little time, a couple minutes at the most, just remembering these two qualities. What can I do today to feel relaxed and comfortable in my sitting posture? What can I do today to bring a little bit more wakefulness into my sitting posture, a quality of uprightness, like I'm willing to sit up right in the middle of my life as it actually is, that kind of spirit. It's, so it's a, it has a feeling of fearlessness, like I'm willing for this 30 minutes to really meet my life. And let your body posture reflect that as best you can without losing a sense of ease and relaxation. So it's an art. If you spend more than a few minutes at the beginning of your sit, it will become an obsession and you'll never practice. And this happens to meditators where they think the practice is about finding the right sitting posture. And they spend the whole sit sort of screwing around with their sitting posture. And then their time's up and they're just frustrated. So spend a few moments at the beginning, do the best you can, and then just let your posture be what it is that t for the rest of that uh, sitting period. Just let go. And if you start to judge it or, or think, doubt, you know, maybe you did something wrong, just see that as a thought. Oh, that's just a thought. That's called doubt. That's doubting. And doubting is like this. Can this be okay? Right? You're just being mindful of it. Just receiving or knowing that this is how it is now. Or if you have the best posture ever and you never want to lose it, it's all craving, wanting, you know. And this is like this. Craving's like this. So whatever you might think, you know, why does she sit so straight and still? Comparing. Comparing's like this. Once you've entered to your practice, then whatever comes up is just something to be known. Just something to see. And then to come back to the body, to come back to the breath. And that's our basic practice. So now we have our sitting. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we work with the mind to give it an anchor. Ultimately, the practice goes in the direction of open attention. You don't need any crutch, meaning any particular technique. We're just practicing being wide open, seeing whatever's predominant without clinging, without attaching, without putting any spin. Just seeing and seeing and seeing, or receiving, receiving, or knowing, knowing. Just being open. But it's not so easy to go there because our mind is so in the habit of chewing on experience, conceptualizing it, spinning with it. So we create what we call an anchor. An anchor simply means a neutral 
experience that's easy to pay attention to, that's always available, and we're training the mind that knows to know that, right? So we're training the mind that knows to know the sensations of the breath coming in and the sensations of the breath going out. Because when we're just feeling the breath coming in and feeling the breath coming out, we're not worrying. We're not planning our future or regurgitating the past or comparing ourselves to somebody else. And, and this is really important, when we start to do one of those things, when we're with the breath, and then we start to plan or compare ourselves or to have a painful memory, we're more likely to notice, ah, remembering is like this, comparing is like this, planning is like this. So the anchor gives us something neutral from which we're more likely to notice the mind doing its normal thing, which is to go into some sort of discursive thinking. And we can catch it more quickly. Oh, the mind's off, and it's like this. Now, the mind's still going to wander, of course. It will get lost, but we're just going to notice it more quickly. We notice the wandering, and then we return. We feel the body sitting. So we return to the experience of the body sitting, the visceral, tactile experience of the body sitting. And there we discover the breath. So we're not returning to the breath as a concept. We're returning to the breath as physical sensation. So that means like the belly expanding and contracting or the touching sensations at the nostrils. Wherever the breath is predominant or clear for you, that's what's important. So first, come back to the experience of the body, the whole body. So it's like we're opening to this ocean of sensation. There's always, the body is always accessible. Can you feel your body right now? Feel the buttocks, feel the clothes on the skin, the quality of warmth or coolness, any tension, wherever there might be tension, maybe even the weight of the hair on the head. There's just an infinite number of tactile physical sensations right now for each of us. But we're mostly oblivious to this part of our reality. So this is our primary anchor and then the more specific anchor in the experience of the body is the experience of the breath coming in, the breath going out. That will require a refinement of our attention, right? Because the breath is moving, and it's uh, especially when we become more calm, it becomes very subtle. So that's good because it requires us to. It's like if we're in the if we're in the woods, you know and uh, we hear a sound, you know, and then, and then it disappears. Then we get really quiet, we really listen. Oh yeah, and then we hear it, it's very subtle now. And it's the same thing as the body relaxes, the breath relaxes, it calms down. It becomes almost imperceptible. But that passage from uh, a gross breath to a subtle breath is exactly the kind of training we need. That's why it's such a nice anchor for our attention. So we're paying attention to two things. We're paying attention to the breath in the body, and we're paying attention to whatever disturbs our attention to the breath. And one isn't better than the other. So if you're constantly noticing what's drawing your attention away from the breath, don't think you're a failure. Simply do your best to be mindful of that. If nothing ever draws your attention away from your breath, fine. Just pay attention to your breath. 
So it doesn't matter. Simply open to the breath as an anchor and have a strong intention to connect and sustain attention with the breath. But inevitably, when the mind is drawn away into thought, emotion, strong sensation in the body, <coughs> sounds, or whatever, then that becomes your meditation. For those moments, then, notice that predominant obstacle or distraction. And you can even note it in your mind if you want, if you find it useful. Just make a very simple note, like name it. Ah, hearing. Hearing. Hearing's like this. Right? As long as it's predominant. When it's no longer predominant, what do we do? We simply feel the body sitting, and there, feeling the body sitting, rediscover the movement of the breath in the body. And you can name that too, because it might help you, it helps some people, to be more continuous in their with their awareness. So you might note, if you're feeling your breath here in the belly, you might note, rising, falling. Or if you're feeling your breath here, you might note, in, out. The noting doesn't matter. What's important is noticing, right? But the noting can help support that continuous noticing. And if you do note, if you do use a mental label for predominant experience, then let it be very quiet, like a whisker at the back of the mind. These instructions are outlined, I think, in the handout, the second page or so in the handout. There's a two-page description. It's called One Approach to Mindfulness. And you can read through that. And especially the first few days, you might even want to read through it right before you sit to remind yourself of these basic instructions. So we're going to stretch, and then we're going to do this practice, and then we'll see if people have questions about uh, the basic instructions. And I'll, I'll give you a few more instructions as we're sitting. So let's stand up. And the Buddha taught, of course, to practice in all postures, so we can just start our sit standing. <laughs> Probably it's nice not to lock your knees. Belly can be nice and soft. We're just going to stand for maybe four or five minutes so that our legs get a break, and then we're going to sit down. But we're going to start a practice in this position. So take a few seconds and do what you can to cultivate a sense of ease and relaxation in your standing pose. Reminding the eyes and the jaw to be relaxed, shoulders, the fingers and hands can soften, belly soft, even the floor of the pelvis can be released, and knees a little bent. Maybe take one or two nice deep inhales and exhalations. Allow the breathing to continue on its own. So trust the body to do the breathing, however that might be. It might be smooth, it may be erratic, deep or shallow. It doesn't really matter. Just let the body breathe. 
And at first practice being sensitive, awake to the whole body, all of the sensations, without being afraid of any discomfort or unpleasant sensations in the body. Just let them be the way they are. See if it's possible to be intimate with the body. to all the sensations that come and go. And then begin to notice the natural movement of the breath in the body, wherever it seems most clear to you. Simply let the breath come in, letting the breath go out. See if it's possible for periods of time to have an unbroken or continuous awareness of the breath. Knowing the breath without needing to control it. When there are ordinary distractions, then just let the distraction come and go. Keep returning to the breath in the body. And when a more potent or predominant distraction arises, something that would create tension if you tried to return to the breath, then let the attention or the awareness open to the distraction, whatever it might be, maybe a physical experience or mental, but just let it be. Let it get as big as it needs to get. 
the practice to practice being sensitive or open, non-reactive, completely fearless. And notice what happens as we just let things unfold. If it disappears or goes away, come back to the body, feel the breath in the body and begin again. another 15 minutes or so. Take your time, of course, open your eyes and make your way to a comfortable, upright sitting posture. But there's no need to rush. you feel settled, just bring the awareness back into the experience of the body sitting. Feeling at home here in the experience of the body sitting. And quite naturally begin to notice the movement of the breath in the body after you've been settled. Feel the breath as it comes in, feeling the breath as it goes out, letting the heart mind be open and receptive to these sensations of the breath. Noticing where the mind is and appreciating that it is not easy for the mind to stop thinking. But be persistent. As soon as you notice that thinking is happening, then recognize that. You can note, ah, thinking. Thinking is like this. And then with a strong intention, Turn the attention to the experience of the body sitting and feel the breath coming in, feel the breath going out, noting, noticing each inhalation, each exhalation. 
Even noticing the gaps between the in-breath and the out-breath and the out-breath and the in-breath. A continuity of attention with the breathing. Remembering these two qualities of brightness or alertness on the one hand and relaxation or calmness on the other hand. Being interested, seeing clearly the ordinary breath as it comes in, as it goes out. So we're practicing being alert or clear, interested, in the ordinary breath. But we're also practicing being completely content, fully accepting however it is. So there's no agenda. We're not trying to get anywhere. Just receiving the breath as it comes in, receiving the breath as it goes out, receiving the different distractions as they arise in the mind or around us, just letting things be the way they are. This is conducive to tranquility.
sort of for the last minute or two, letting go of any particular technique. So we're just sitting here. Be open to the experience of the body and the experience of the mind. Completely let things be now, accepting the body and mind the way it is. See if it's possible to just let things be, this body, this mind, even if you're quite reactive right now, just let that be. This is how it is. Can this be okay? when you're ready and no need to move quickly but you might want to stretch out if you're feeling some tension stretch out your legs if you need to valuable things about taking a course like this uh, is to get a sense, a deepening sense that although, you know, just looking around this room, you can see we're probably all quite different, or certainly some of us are quite different in terms of our backgrounds, in terms of our personalities. But when it's what's so useful is to realize that the basic human condition of having a mind makes us similar in a very deep, important way. And so, please, uh, I encourage you to please speak up about what you're noticing. What is, what is it that you're finding difficult to be mindful with? How have you been working with it? How have you been trying to be mindful or open? What's the challenge? What works? What hasn't worked? Any questions that you have? So what did people notice, or some of you, what did you notice in this last 15, 20 minute sit that we had? Ryan? Um, well, I just kind of noticed when I kind of got more into the practice and I started relaxing and I kind of was right into the brink of kind of dozing off and kind of aware and I was real relaxed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I really wasn't very mindful. Like, and I'm not really even noticing because I'm kind of, especially when I become a little more tired, it's definitely hard to stay more. Um, you're just kind of like aware of it. Yeah. So, and of course, this might be just that, you know, Ryan's sleep deprived or something like that. But even if you have plenty of sleep, uh, probably you know one of the two greatest obstacles in meditation practice is these, these uh, various qualities of trance-like states. They tend to be very relaxing and pleasant, but there are states that you can get caught in, and caught in the sense of every time you sit, you know, not every time, but often when you sit, you just slide into, fall into these very tranquil 
trance-like states or dream-like states, soft and fuzzy, pleasant, but you don't learn anything. And the whole point of meditation practice is to have insight, to actually see into the nature of the mind, into the nature of experience, something that we haven't seen before. That's the whole point. So we don't want to just have a nice, pleasant vacation in some pleasant state. So when you notice that, and it's good for the tranquility to develop, then, then the question is, what can I do now to develop brightness, alertness? Because the tranquility is good. If, if you can tell, it feels really healthy to be tranquil like that. The body starts to relax. There's pleasantness. Pleasantness is good in meditation practice. Now, it won't happen that often, but when it does happen, it's really good. Because I mentioned earlier, we start to feel content, right? And when we're content, what does contentment do to restlessness? It undermines it. We're actually happy to be there sitting, right? Because we have contentment, we have tranquility. Now all we need to do is need to do is stay awake, bright, interested, that we're not just sort of sliding into some fuzzy, soft place, but we can actually learn something about the nature of the mind. Other experiences that people had? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, uh, once I, I reached a relaxed state, focusing on the breath, and then just addressing it, what comes comes by, um, there was a few startling coughs. Um, when I've done meditation before, that is, you, you get kind of going, it's that disturbing you. But being accepting of it, and just focusing on the breath, and then when it came into my awareness, when I heard it, there are the parts of my body other than ears that hear. I felt my body react to it. Mm -hmm. And it was vivid and it reminded me of a clarity that I don't think I've had since I was Yeah. Clarity of experience that it was just. <coughs> and then I was happy. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, it makes me happy. Yeah. And then I had the thought about when I was a kid. Like, oh, yeah, it's reminded me of that. Back to the breath. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting. Good. And good that you, you saw it with such clarity, like the whole sequence of events, you know, one after another, and how they're related, and yet they're separate events, separate happenings. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, this is the great thing about mindfulness meditation practices. It is a direct practice of developing sensitivity. And mostly now, you know, as adults, we're not very sensitive. We've learned to dull ourselves out. But I remember one well-known teacher saying, nobody ever consciously chooses to be numb. But that doesn't mean that we're not living lives leading in the direction of numbness or denial. We all are to some degree. And the practice, awareness practice or mindfulness practice, is just going in the other direction. And it's actually not easy to be sensitive. This world is not built for really sensitive people, right? So we, the only thing that allows us to be very sensitive in the world is wisdom, the wisdom of, uh, of equanimity. So we need, we need the sensitivity because we have to actually, because we actually learn Spiritual insight comes from being sensitive, but it needs to be matched with a, a deepening understanding, which is a, which allows us to be non-reactive, not to get caught 
by what we're being sensitive to, what we're noticing. Because we're sensitive to everything, the beautiful and the ugly. And as our sensitivity develops, we can get quite attached to the beautiful. Like if you're feeling, you know, like even in your experience, what's your name? Todd. Even in that experience of just uh, appreciating the sensitivity and remembering that this is how it was when I was a kid, you know, we could get really attached. Oh, I really like meditation practice and kind of start to cling to that. Or we could get sensitive to something that's really unpleasant, like we have that sensitivity and then an old memory comes up of some something we did that was really bad. And with, if we see it with that kind of sensitivity, we can be crushed. So the wisdom is that the beautiful and the difficult are seen with this understanding that, ah, oh, this is how it is now. It's like we're not trying to grab on to what's pleasant or push away, be afraid of what's unpleasant. We're just understanding that everything can be received. The pleasant, it comes and then it goes. The unpleasant, it comes and then it goes. Thanks for sharing that, Todd. Other thoughts? Mm -hmm. Clarity has the characteristic of uh, bringing us to the edge of what what we it takes us beyond what we think. So it's always clarity is always bringing us into a new world or a new place. So that it like uh, raises the hair kind of at the back of our head, like haven't been here before. This isn't familiar. And that happens even with the breath. Now, I know, we all think we know the breath, but I guarantee you, unless you've been doing practice for a long time, you don't really know what the breath is. I mean, we, we know conceptually, you know, we have this idea of lungs and maybe what's going on physiologically. But the actual experience of being intimate with breath is startling. It's really startling. And I don't want to say why it's startling, because it will be a little bit different for everybody. But I guarantee it's not what you think. <laughs> I, could, I bet all the money in the world on that's not what you think. Because your breath isn't something you can think about. It's actually, breath actually is just nature. So this is the great thing. It doesn't actually matter what we practice being awake to. What we actually wake up to, no matter if we're listening to the sound of a bird or the sound of a car or the breath in the body or the movement of a thought, we see something about nature or about the way it is that's startling. It's startling to our preconceived ideas or our, our conditioned views, our conditioned understanding. So that's really the, the flavor of clarity is the unknown. It's like uh, getting familiar with being in the unknown. Don't know mind is one of the phrases, you know, from the Zen tradition they use. Don't know mind. And really... Uh, appreciating in our practice and then in our life moving living with that with that awareness like don't know as opposed to you know you go home tonight let's say you live with somebody you go home you walk in 
as soon as you see your partner or whatever, your friend, it's like, you know who that is. You already have them sort of, you know, defined. But try it tonight. When you walk in and you see somebody, you know, who you're living with, your cat, it doesn't matter, any being will do. Even your chair will do. And if you look at it with fresh eyes, if you open to it, you realize this is unknown. This, is, this moment itself is unknown. I mean, you're in a room with a lot of strange people. <laughs> and we want, we want enough of that to stay interested. If we have too much of that, we get a little fr- afraid and we want to go, oh, maybe I've had enough of this. I think I'm out of here. <laughs> Pema Chodron, some of you, I'm sure, have read her book. She's a great Buddhist, American or Western Buddhist teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And really, the, the essence of the practice is the same, whether you're learning from a Zen teacher or a Tibetan teacher or a Theravada or a Vipassana teacher. But she has this great line where she says, never underestimate the tendency to bolt <laughs> in meditation practice. Because that comes up really strong sometimes, that clarity and the unknown that it reveals. And it's like, I'm not sure I'm meant to see this. You know, it's like I just as soon have my preconceived idea back. And so we we can get, uh, you might notice sometimes that a strong wave of fear comes up. But just so don't be surprised by that. It's just fear. And it feels like this when it happens. So just work with it as something that's happening. And now it's intense. And it's like this. And you'll see that fear, like everything else, it comes, it lasts for a while, and then it goes away. We don't have to take responsibility for getting rid of the fear. It will go away on its own. Just like the pleasant states, like calmness. It came, it arose, it was here, and then it went away. And that's how things tend to happen. And this also promotes, just that understanding of impermanence promotes equanimity and patience. Other thoughts about what you noticed in your practice tonight that you'd like to share? Mm-hmm. You're going to be real loud to us to bounce up this wall and go to the back of the room. Well, I've never tried to meditate in the room. So, during the middle of it, I was thinking, wow, I've never been with this many people in this much quiet. You know, and that's quieter than if that's been a good for sleep. <laughs> but it also felt like we weren't just little people sitting separate. And all this, for me, I felt like, it's hard to describe it, like a connected mass. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, one of the things we'll notice is just in sitting, just in, in, in a daily way, uh, putting together some, uh, some time where we can be quiet and mindful, what we'll notice is how much work it is to keep ourselves apart. We have to work really hard to hold ourselves apart from everything else. Because we're constantly sort of redefining who we are as opposed to who all of you are and everything else is. And we don't notice it because it's like automatic pilot. But our mind is constantly doing that. When we meet each other's eyes, you know, we there's a certain tension that arises, right? You notice that? It's like, and it's like helping us maintain this ongoing concept that I'm here and you're there. This is me. There is that. 
And so when we do something as simple as follow the in and out breath, and we become wholehearted in that activity, all of that other work that we do sort of under the level of consciousness, it can't happen because the mind is really being used to just be vividly present with the breath, so fully there with the breath. There's really no room left in the mind to maintain the idea of separation. And sort of we start to notice what it's like when we're not working hard at maintaining the idea of separation. So it's not like all of a sudden something else is happening. What's actually happening is the mind isn't creating separation, isn't maintaining the view of separation. And we begin to feel it. And it's a release. It's not that we're creating or even discovering non-separation. It's always that way. But we work really hard, which is why being a human being is so exhausting <laughs> and difficult, to kind of keep our boundaries up. You know, we do it as individuals, we do it as races, we do it as nations, you know, just working at our boundaries. A little bit more time, if anybody else has some thoughts about practice. Counting is another really good technique to support continuity of attention. So there's two, well, there's many, but two basic techniques that you can weave in to your basic mindfulness practice. Let's say you're working with your breathing. And one is to count the breaths, because if you give yourself this ta task, breathing in, exhaling one, breathing in, exhaling two. Now, you don't have to say breathing in, but you're just breathing in, exhaling. At the, toward the end of your exhalation, you count. You get to 10, you start over again. If at any point, as you're counting from 1 to 10, your mind wavers and you forget where you are, like if you notice your mind trying to think, was I at 7 or 6, then just start over with 1, with the next exhalation. Don't pretend you know it's okay let's just start over <laughs> and when you get to 10 then start over and if you want to count how many 10s you're doing that's fine you can do that so when you get to like if you're uh, counting in 9 but your second set of 10 then you when you get to instead of saying 10 you just say 20 then 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 30 just like that and you can count to 100 like that and then you can do 100 through 200. That's a nice way, especially at the first part of your set, to do some counting practice, especially for those who are new. The other specific technique that supports continuity is just to name. It's not quite as good as counting, but it's not quite as intrusive as counting, too. And that's just, like I mentioned earlier, if you're feeling the breath in your belly, then you might note rising. So it's like you're whispering the word rising at the back of your mind. Right as the experience of rising is ha happening. And the name, rising, is just pointing the attention to the actual experience of rising. You don't really care about the word rising. You want the word to be a cue to feel the sensations of rising and falling. Or if you're here at your nostrils, you might note in and out instead of rising and falling. So that's another good technique. One more comment or question, if anybody has a, something they'd like to offer to the group. Brian? Um, for this first week, like, how long should we try to sit? Well, is a good time? 
Well, some of you have been practicing for a while, so you know you can just continue with what you're doing, or maybe use the class as an opportunity to increase the amount of time. But you know, given our busy lives, it's not that easy for things to settle down if we don't sit for at least 15 or 20 minutes. So I would shoot for 30 minutes. Now, if you can't do 30 minutes or longer, just do what you can. So don't use it as an excuse. So I can't sit for 30 minutes. So maybe next, maybe tomorrow, you know, or maybe next lifetime. Because <laughs> we, you know how it is. We keep putting things off. So just make a vow that you're not going to go to sleep until you at least get into a chair or until you're sitting posture for a couple minutes. Because everybody can do a few minutes, even if it's in your bed with your PJs on, with your sitting on your pillow, right? So do, do something, but have the intention to put aside 30 minutes or more. And then if it ends up having to be a little less some days, then it's a little less some days. Yeah, that would be good. And uh, I have some timers. You can actually, for those of you who have uh, internet access, if you just Google meditation timer, you get several options that you can download. And then you can either make a CD of it or just keep it on your computer. And it will be just nice. You know, the bell will ring. You tell it how long. And then in 30 minutes, the bell will ring again for you. So there's, uh, you can do that. And we have several downstairs in the library, and I'll put some more down next week uh, so that other people can check them out of the library downstairs if you don't have a computer to do that. The other thing that works quite well, it's just a kitchen timer, but it's a little obnoxious. So what I would do is wrap it in a towel, so set it for 30 minutes or whatever, then wrap it in a towel and leave it so you can't see it and you won't be tempted to look at it. And then, and then you'll hear it sort of in a muffled way uh, when you're done, when it's done. So I want to take the last uh, seven minutes or so and just say a few words about why meditate. Um, and this is uh, just offering a particular perspective that the Buddha used a lot when he was teaching 2,500 years ago or so. One of the things that I've always liked um, when in you know I've, I've been in a lot of meetings in my life, in business and in working in education for a while, and then being the executive director of a small nonprofit, you know this place. Um, lots of meetings, and I've always appreciated when somebody in the meeting says something like, "Okay, what's the problem we're trying to solve here?" You know how it is. So often. We're working hard to solve something, but we don't, we've sort of lost sight of what the problem is. So this is an appropriate question for any spiritual tradition or any spiritual technique or practice. Before we uh, come up with the technique or the practice, we should understand well, what's the problem. So friends, what's the problem with human existence? your human existence, more specifically, right? Instead of theoretically, you know, what's wrong with your human existence? What is, why are, you know, 60 or so people, whatever we are, interested in mindfulness meditation practice? What is it about our lives that makes us interested? 
Now, if we went around, we'd probably get a lot of different answers, but because I only have five minutes, <laughs> I, bet, I bet it's fair to say that nobody here is perfectly content with life as it actually is. That means with your internal states and with the external situation in your life, politics in this country, your family situation, your heart, your health, for whatever reason, we're not perfectly content. And that's, that's where the Buddha started too. He recognized this pervasive quality of discontent. And he even noticed it when things are going pretty well. And the truth is, certainly relative to the vast majority of people on this planet, things are going pretty well for us. I mean, I'm assuming most of us are well-fed have a, a warm place to stay, relatively safe place to stay. And yet, even for us, there's this pervasive feeling of discontent. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have at our disposals, disposal ways to distract ourselves from our discontent. I mean, I know I can stay really busy, and when I'm really busy and hyper, I tend not to notice how discontent I am. Right? Or if you drink enough coffee <laughs> or listen to music you know that with that that is distracting enough we can forget that we're suffering beings but the fact that we don't know we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering it just means we don't know that we're suffering so for the Buddha and the way he taught this is really relevant this is the first noble truth the, this is a basic model in Buddhism and it's not a philosophical statement, it's a training technique. So the first noble truth, there is stress, there is anxiety, there is suffering. And it's relevant. The Buddha didn't say that, but this is what he meant. He meant there's suffering and it's relevant. Meaning we need to, as human beings, interested in waking up, interested in being deeply happy and peaceful and loving, caring, wise human beings then we should really place the experience of discontentment and suffering and stress into the center. This is what's most relevant. Not because we're morbid, but because what we need to learn is wrapped up in the experience of suffering. We have to understand how is it that this heart suffers, gets stressed, gets caught up in craving, gets caught up in fear, and judgment and anxiety. How is it? What we normally do is blame the world for our, our suffering. And you can try that and see if it works. <laughs> or, you know, you can just keep an open mind that maybe suffering and how the heart mind is relating that's connected that the suffering, the stress, the discontent we experience in life is how we relate. And this is really points to why we meditate. Why a human being, somebody like us here in the room, would be interested in cultivating mindfulness meditation. Because we were sort of in this place where we understand that stress or discontentment or whatever you want to call it, the basic unsatisfactoriness in life, that it's relevant and, and 
it somehow has a lot to do with how this heart-mind is relating. Because we know there are people in miserable circumstances that can be quite happy. And we know there are people who have everything you can imagine, beauty, you know, beautiful person, with a lot of wealth, people who care about them, who can be quite unhappy. So, of course, it's nice when we're healthy, but we know people who are unhealthy who are happy, loving and wise. So we know that it isn't about health, although certainly health is nice, but it's more than health. Same with beauty, same with wealth, same with friendship. These things are nice, but they're not the actual cause for well-being. And this is the spirit that we undertake the practice. We want to get, uh, we want insight into the heart that suffers and the heart that's free from suffering. So when we're a suffering human being, we want to have insight into that. And in those moments when we feel, when the heart feels unburdened, when we feel light, happy, loving, and free, we want insight into that. Like, what is that heart like? What are the conditions or characteristics of that heart? Right? See, that's great. Our laboratory's right here. You know, this mind and heart, and how it is that suffering arises here, and how it is that happiness arises, real happiness arises here. So the whole point of developing this balance that I talked about with, you know, intense or high degree of interest, brightness, alertness, and deep, deep ease and contentment, this is the exact mind we need to undertake this investigation into the heart. Because if we go at it from being a miserable human being, that agenda will get in the way with seeing clearly what's going on. Right? So we need a lot of ease and contentment so that we don't have that agenda. And, but we also need a lot of brightness because if we don't, we're just going to believe the pat answers that we've told ourselves or that our culture tells us over and over again. So we have to be able to cut through the concepts into the actual experience of stress or suffering and lightness and happiness and peace. And we'll go, I'll talk more about the Four Noble Truths, the basic model that we use in Buddhist practice next in the next few weeks. So we have seven days. Now, you have to remember, next Thursday, it is January in Minnesota, there will be lots of reasons not to come back. You know, you'll be tired. You know, it hurt to sit so long. It's too crowded. Da -da 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 -da. I'll do it next time. If you just repeat that course over and over again, it's too far away. So I'm just saying, some of you won't come back. But if you if you can, when you notice the resistance, whatever particular flavor it has next Thursday, you can just practice in that moment. Oh, resistance. This is just resistance, and it feels like this. Can this be okay? And then decide whether you should come back. Don't do it on automatic pilot. Resistance comes, and then you don't come back. Feel the resistance. Take a moment. Make peace with the resistance. And then decide what's best for you, whether to come back or not. 
And if you know you're not coming back, give us a call. <laughs> so have a good week of practice, and I'll see you next Thursday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.